All right, well, once again, for the final time, we return to 2 Samuel chapter 11. It is our third week by looking into the account to dissect what we have learned about David and Bathsheba. Now, allow me to quickly recap. As you turn there for the last time, we read the text. We're going to read it in this entirety at one time like we have the last few weeks, dissect it rather in portions and read a little at a time. But allow me to quickly recap what we've discussed so far and how we've applied it. Because remember, very early in the text, we learned, because the text reveals to us, that David was not at war. I mean, typically in the spring, it was a great time to go to war, and he was a warring king. He was not afraid to use the sword, and he would go with his men into battle. But this particular occasion, this particular moment, the text tells us that he did not go to war, but he stayed at home, which we noticed then made him idle. He arose from his afternoon of resting, and as he did so, he went into his patio and he observed a woman bathing. As he observed a woman bathing in the afternoon, he could not resist the temptation to look. But not only did he look, we gather he looked again, or maybe he looked longer because he maybe stared, he certainly lusted, and then he eventually sought her out. His idle leisure time got the best of him. I mean, he ultimately fell to Satan's trap. And we know that with application, the same thing can happen to us during our time of leisure, during the idle time that we have. And then the application was that Satan often finds some mischief for idle hands to do. Remember, we had stated our greatest battles do not usually come when we're working hard. They come when we have some leisure, when we've got time on our hands, when we are bored. The second application observed that Bathsheba wasn't without some fault of her own. Recall again that she was taking the afternoon to have this opportunity for her bath. She lacked then, by our observation and some help from the commentary, in the usual expected Hebrew modesty of women, which meant that perhaps she was careless and maybe a little bit foolish. Yeah, no doubt David is the aggressor, and he was without excuse because he indeed sought her out, but she did not eliminate some of the fact that she had some fault of her own. Now, in regards to that, we looked upon her maybe a little critically, and we said that she should have maybe been a stumbling block. And we applied that then to our lives and said we should never be a stumbling block for someone else. It is not merely enough to avoid sin ourselves, we must not be a stumbling block for someone else. Now, our third application, which we sought out last week and found, was concerning the post-act, after David and Bathsheba had been together. We said they were willingly together. Yeah, David sought her out, but she come to him, and they willingly engaged. And when it was over, we recognized from the text that, well, Bathsheba returns home. A night of passion and pleasure, Seems to be done. The moment is over. So everybody can just go back to their lives as before. No harm, no foul, right? Well, not exactly, because we've learned in verse 5 that David received a message from her, from Bathsheba, that she was pregnant. So it was not completely over. And that reminded us then, as we found that, that the theme underlying this text, the 17 verses, is that sin always bears consequences. Always will have consequences. So Satan then tempted David. 
David, trapped with the irresistible lustful desires of the flesh, subsequently fell. We asked then, as we noticed David's fall to the temptation that Satan put in front of him, that where was Satan then? When the temptation was over and the act was done, where was Satan at that moment? He's nowhere around. I mean, we talked about how his job essentially is done. I mean, he, he deceived, he tricked, he lured, he painted this beautiful rosy picture. And once David, you or I, bite from the fruit, he vacates the scene. He's done, he's gone. Remember Chuck Swindoll's comment was, it's been my observation over the years, that the devil never tips his hand in temptation. He shows you the beauty, the ecstasy, the fun, the excitement, the stimulating adventure of stolen desires. But he never tells the heavy drinker, tomorrow morning there'll be a hangover. Ultimately, you will ruin your family. He never tells the drug user early on, this is the beginning of a long, sorrowful, dead-end road. He never tells the thief, you're going to get caught, friend. You do this, and you wind up behind bars. He certainly does not warn the adulterer, you know pregnancy is a real possibility. That comment with our dissection of the text revealed our third application, which is when the sin is done and the penalties of the son of the sin comes due, the devil is nowhere to be found. Again, once the consequences are going to be laid down, he vacates the scene. He allows us to deal with it ourselves. So then for David, the consequences now, as we return to the text, are about to become real. Remember, he just received word where we left off from a messenger that Bathsheba, another man's wife, that he is, that she is with his child. So the question really becomes now, what will David do at this particular point? Will he admit his sin, or will he go to cover-up mode? Now think about it before we dissect and return to the text. Ask yourself this, what would I have done? Or maybe a different situation, because I don't think any of us are adulterers, but we still commit sin. So in the sin that we have, what do we do? Do we sometimes Go to God and say, God, forgive me? Or do we begin to go into cover-up mode? Into maybe denial. Thinking, I didn't do anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with my actions. nothing wrong with what I did. We just flat-out deny it. Many of you know that during the month of June, I was driving a school bus, taking kids back and forth to school because there was summer school at North Gibson. One of the last weeks of the summer school, I had a child that was on the bus, and the, the bus we were taking home every day at noon because the kids were only expected to be on the bus during the morning. It went from morning to noon, and the school was over with. But during the time we were also taking kids home every day at noon, we gave them a lunch. They got a meal. When they got off the bus, they would take the lunch with them, and we'd go to their house. Well, I would have maybe 30 people on the bus, 30 kids on the bus, and I would have two boxes of lunches set behind me, one in the seat to my right to my behind me, and one off to my right a little bit, boxes of lunches for the kids to take. It's basically a tray, and they pick up the tray, and they take the bag, and they take the milk and juice, and they get off the bus. But I've told the kids early on, you do not eat on the bus. When you get off the bus, you take the meal, you go to your house, you sit down, and enjoy whatever's in the tray. 
the one particular day near the end of school, one little boy, a first grader named Grayson, I guess he could not resist the temptation because he moved up right behind me in the, in the seat. So I couldn't really see him right behind me. The seat's up a little bit high, and he's right behind me. All of a sudden, the girl behind him said, Kurt, he's eating. Grayson's eating. I said, he's eating? There's no way that's even possible. No, he's eating. I said, well, what's he eating? Well, it looks like he took a Rice Krispie out of the bag. I said, no, Grayson, I looked up in the mirror. There's a student mirror. He looked up at Grayson, are you eating? He says, no. So I pulled over and stopped the bus. And I go back and look at Grayson. He's just right behind me. And he's like this. I said, Grayson, are you eating anything? He says, no. I said, you don't have anything to eat. No. I said, there's a Rice Krispie wrapper right there on the floor. It ain't mine. I said, Grayson, you know you're not supposed to eat on the bus. I, I know that you might be hungry, but you're not supposed to get in those meals until you get off the bus. It ain't mine. I didn't do anything. I said, let's just remove the temptation. Go back in a different seat. Go, go back here if you're supposed to be. So he gets up. He said, he gets up and he starts to go like this. I said, turn around. What do you turn around? So I turn him around. And there's a rice krispie still right there in his hand. So he's caught. And, and but that's a, an example of how we begin to live when we do something we know we should not be doing, like David has here. Sometimes we go into denial, or sometimes we go into cover-up mode. And why do we sometimes go into cover-up mode? Because we don't want anybody to find out. Now, maybe David's going to come clean, or maybe he's going to completely try to cover it up. We've read the text. Let's go back to it now and begin to look and see what David's choice is going to be. Don't worry about standing. Let's just do it in segments. Go back to verse 4. David sent messengers. Okay, we know David is about to receive the news. I mean, he lay with her, verse 4. Verse 5, she conceived. She sent and told David, I am pregnant. We've covered that. Now, verse 6. Here's what David did. David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Now there's more to come, but notice this already. When David got the news in verse 5, right before verse 6, when David got the news that he was going to be a father, that Bathsheba was pregnant, he had a decision he had to make. There was one or two things he could choose to do. One or two choices. Number one, he could go before God and declare himself as a sinner. I'm an adulterer. God, I'm guilty. I did wrong. And he could seek reconciliation with God. That was one choice, one route, one path he could have taken. Or he could have went the route of deception and hypocrisy and go into complete denial and cover up. Now, obviously, we read through the text on the previous occasions, and we know that David chose the latter, which ultimately led him further into sin. So notice this then for a quick time out, that we know that, that, that David has been tempted by Satan, and he has indulged in temptation he couldn't resist, and he went, and after the act, Satan leaves the premises. He's gone. But while Satan has left David to deal with the consequences, Notice that he's still lurking out there. He's still watching things to happen. 
And if he sees another opportunity to become present with David to tempt him even further, he's going to capitalize on the moment. And the same thing happens to us, which means we've got to remember the words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, to be alert and sober of mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around looking like a roaring lion for someone to devour. He may find someone else, but he's not going to leave you alone or I alone when we had that first act. We fell into temptation, we sinned. He may vacate us for the consequences. We're going to help us in any way at all, but he's not necessarily going to leave you alone. If he can lead you further and take you down, he will do so. So essentially, he comes back to David and used a tactic with David. Cover it up, dude. Nobody will ever know. Cover it up. Nobody knows. It's just you and Bathsheba. But he forgets that God knows it all. God sees all, knows all. Nothing has changed since the garden. I mean, the same thing essentially to some extent happened with Adam and Eve. I mean, Adam tried the same philosophy to cover it up. And it failed just as miserably as it's about to do with David's error and judgment that he is going to have. I mean, no matter what you slice the text, David makes a horrible decision. He takes a bad situation and makes it worse by not choosing to come clean to God. Instead, he listens once again to the enemy and deepens his sinful actions. He flat out chose the wrong course of action. Perhaps we could say then, analyzing the situation with David, is that he panicked. When he got the news, he panicked and he made a bad, no, a very bad decision. Which leads then for another application for all of us. That when we are in the midst of panic, we do not make wise decisions. When something just happens really quickly and we have to react and we get in panic mode, a lot of times we don't make the best or the right decision. Certainly not one that's wise. Because rationalizing making good decisions under pressure or when panicked is not easy. Not to say it's impossible. Because perhaps with some experience, and particularly in the business world, you can begin to have some good decisions under pressure. I mean, for example, say there's a, a brand new rookie supervisor who has had all of a sudden his line to be shut down by something, production, whether it's chicken, Toyota, cars, whatever it is, the line shut down, a brand new supervisor may make an unwise decision under the crucial time of the line going down, got to get it going under pressure. But an experienced plant manager when the line goes down, because he's been there and has had to make decisions before rather quickly, can more easily make the right decision. Or perhaps another situation. Say, for example, there's a young, just got my driver's license teenager that may not make the right decision when they take their dad's truck out for the weekend to go mudding with their buddies and they tear the mirror off the truck. Now, when dad begins to confront him, because, I mean, it's obvious when a mirror is missing off a truck, I mean, you're going to notice it. I mean, you can't keep it hidden. So when dad begins to confront son, 
He says, how'd my mirror get torn off the truck? How'd it get cracked, bent, and broken? So now if the son has maybe not thought it through, under pressure has to make a quick decision about what happened, he may make up some lame excuse like this. Uh, Dad, it's, it's uh, actually interesting that you asked. Because, well, you know my buddy Mark, right? Well, I mean, you know, Mark and I were driving along, and all of a sudden we got to the food mart. And when we get to the food mart, we see, wow, Dad, we see an elderly lady carrying her groceries out. And, and Mark and I looked and we thought, you know, the right Christian thing to do would be to pull up beside her and just help her get her groceries in her car. Well, we parked and Mark and I jumped out of the truck and went over and started helping with the groceries and carrying them into her car. And Dad, I mean, it really was a good deed, Dad. We were doing the right thing, right? But she's elderly, Dad. And when she began to back out, she cut it too hard and she hit the mirror and tore off the truck. And so Dad's then looking at the situation, maybe assessing it, thinking, well, son, that is a pretty good Christian thing to do. And it is a good deed to maybe help the elderly lady at the food mart. And I'm proud of you for doing that. But that does not explain the mud on the truck or the paint chips on the truck. So son now says, oh, snap, I forgot about the mud. I forgot about the paint chips. I mean, just didn't think it through making the right argument. It made some lame excuse, went into denial mode about what had happened truly to the truck. He should have in hindsight, obviously, told dad, I was just having fun with the buddies. The guy looked careless, and I tore the mirror off the truck. That would have been better. But making good, solid decisions in a panic situation is not for the novice. Instead, bad decisions are made that often end up getting worse. And that's where David is. He's had this night of passion with a woman that he sought out. A woman who, by the way, is married to another man. Who that man then is at battle, at war, where David should be. But that night of passion seemed to go well. But then he gets the message that she is with child. Which since David then into, well, what do I do now? So what does he do? We take the words of Swindoll one more time for a recap. He says, David has had his night of passion. And suddenly the news comes back to haunt him. This woman, the wife of another man, is going to have your baby. And he thinks, what do I do? Rather than falling on his face before God, rather than openly admitting his adultery, he chose the route of deception and hypocrisy, which leads him down the wrong path and allows Satan to capitalize once more. I mean, essentially, David went straight into cover-up mode. It's like he didn't even think about it. He went straight into cover-up. And he came up with this idea, this creative idea, that just backfired on him. Look with me in verse 6 again. We see that David sent word to Joab. I guess the decision he made when he found out. He says, send me Uriah the Hittite. Now, of course, a messenger sent that to Joab. I mean, David is, you know, back at home. So he sent word to Joab through a messenger, send Uriah back. But notice Joab. 
and Joab sent Uriah to David. As I read this text, and I've read it on many occasions, I can't help but start to pause here and think, what on earth is Joab thinking? Because Joab, remember, he's at battle, he's at war, and all of a sudden the messenger comes to him out of the blue, not expected. It means not like he has text, right? And he knows everything is going on in the situation. He doesn't have any kind of Facebook, no social media. He doesn't know what's going on. There's no phone to communicate. He has a messenger come to him and said, hey, the king David wants you to send Uriah back home. So if I'm Joab, I'm thinking, what on earth is going on? Now, Joab, remember, is not only the commander of the army, he is David's nephew. So maybe, just maybe, Joab knows enough about David to know that, yes, he is a man after God's own heart, but maybe he's not always the most noblest person. So maybe Joab, maybe Joab thinks, well, maybe David's done something wrong again. Whatever the situation is, notice that Joab just sent Uriah home. Verse 7, Uriah apparently comes home, he comes to David. And notice verse 7, when Uriah came into David, David asked, oh, how's Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going? i got to stop here again because now I'm thinking, I know David's in cover-up mode. Okay, I, and he just sent for Uriah to come home. So now when Uriah gets there, David's really concerned about how Joab is doing, how the war is going. I mean, do you really think he sincerely cares about the war and Joab? I mean, I don't really think he cares at all. I think he's just trying to be coy. I mean, he's just kind of an ad lib, pretending to be authentic at the moment Uriah comes back. When in reality, he is merely setting up Uriah. He is trying to put Bathsheba's husband at ease. It's not authentic. I suggest to you that he's faking it. Which brings up another quick sub-point. That when we go in cover-up mode, we begin to fake it. And we can do it quite well. Because all of a sudden these thoughts come to us about how we can you know, make the situation that we got bad on our own. It wasn't God's doing, it was our doing. We can begin to think about how we can make this better and cover it up. And those thoughts come creeping back rather quickly. And the enemy just keeps fueling them and fueling them and fueling them like gas on a fire. Notice that David even adds with Uriah being present with him. He even sends him a present, more faking. This is part of the master plan in verse 8. David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. David has no idea, or he's completely really trying to manipulate Uriah. I mean, he really is not authentic at all and wanting to send a present to Uriah. He's just trying to tempt Uriah into being with his wife. But it doesn't quite work. It didn't work as David expected. Verse 9, Uriah slept at the door of the king's house. You know, if it had been me, I'd have taken the present. You know what I'm saying? I've taken a present and enjoyed it, whatever it was. Of course, you ride on the situation. 
But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord. It did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Well, look in verse 11. Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in Booth. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to live my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. What a great contrast in character now the author has presented between the actions of David and his all cover-up and now that of Uriah. The, the man who just who seems to be oblivious really to the situation. But just notice with the contrast in character, it begins to spell out here how Uriah seems to be much more noble, much more honest, much more the forthright person. He's a, he's a faithful soldier to his comrades, to his country, and to his king. But that's all the actions that David should be as king. It reminds us and reveals to us what Isaiah had written in chapter 32, verse 8 that he who is noble plans noble things, and the noble things he stands. Well, maybe that's then Uriah, because it doesn't, by what we discern from the text, begin to represent at all David, or at least not at this moment. I'm not saying David is not without some characteristics of being noble, but we don't see them being exercised at this moment. So then notice that when the initial scheme, the initial deceit doesn't work as planned as David's master plan is unfolding, things ain't going right. He invites Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, the woman with David's child, he invites him to eat, verse 12. The plan just keeps going. David said to Uriah, remain here today also. And tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him in, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. David has once again sunk to a new level. He invited Uriah in, and cover up in denial, had him to eat, had him to drink, and got him drunk. In the evening, when he went to lie on his couch with the servant of the Lord, he did not go down to his house. Uriah, once again, even when he's drunk, seems to do the right, noble, forthright thing. David just can't seem to do anything right at this particular moment. And we're being very critical of David and his actions. But notice how he just seems to go along further and further, deeper and deeper into sinful cover-up denial mode. But notice this too. I mean, David hasn't, of all the things that David done, has he done so wrong? I mean, yeah, totally he's done wrong. I mean, he had an adulterous affair with another man's wife. That is a, a gross sin. But that's not bad enough. He continues to go further and further and further, making the entire situation worse. I mean, we could say that David is completely out of control, subject completely and fallen. To the enemy. 
Notice in verse 14 that when all of this is happening, when David's way out of control, just when we think it can't get worse, it just seems to get worse. In the morning, verse 14, and Uriah didn't go down again to his house. He stayed there at the doorstep of David with the servants. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and now sent it by the hand of Uriah. So now it's not just some flunky messenger going to take a word to date to, to, to Joab. Now David is going to have Uriah himself to take the next word, the next action that he wants Joab to take. So in the letter, it tells us that he wrote this to Joab. Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Remarkable. Has David not sunk now to a whole new level? There was one initial sin in which he could have just come clean before God. And God surely would have forgiven him. But David would not come to God at that moment and continue to make it worse upon himself to the point now where he's about to have murder. Verse 16, the Joab was besieging the city. He assigned. I mean, Joab, give Joab a little credit. He's at least obedient to his command, to, to his master. He, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were the valiant men, exactly what David told him to do. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So there it is. 17 verses that we've been reading the last several weeks. This week we read it a little differently, not all at one time, dissected in portions. But notice that David has made an initial decision, an initial bad decision to seek out Bathsheba at that moment when he began to look out on the horizon on his patio of his rooftop on the palace, and sees a woman bathing, he immediately, remember, he should have immediately retrieved and found something else to occupy his time. He had too much idle time. He should have found some other king responsibilities to do. But he didn't. He sought that initial action. He sought her out. They were together. That was what happened. He should, at that moment, when he found out she'd been pregnant, come and made a full confession. But now he's taking the situation to an even worse level to even murder. Does one sin justify another? It seems to David to be the case. Yeah, I'm looking at him rather critically. But it seems he makes bad decision after bad decision. But I want you to see something that maybe is kind of hidden here because we're so familiar with the count we can so easily overlook it. Look once more, verse 16 and 17. Again, Joab is besieging the city. Uriah is a place where the most valiant men, the hardest fighting is. The men of the city came out, fought with Joab. So there's battle fighting, much like it was during VBS when Kayla and Colton appeared from swords, going everywhere, battling each other. Levi even came up on the action a few times and tried to get his stick in there, his sword. I noticed one time Colton was hurt. Did you see that? It hurt his side. But here is the fighting happening in the moment. So the text tells us then. We know Uriah is about to die, but look. 
some of the servants of David among the people fell. It's not just Uriah. David has consequences with his sin. It's not just Uriah. I mean, he wants Uriah out of the picture. We can tell that. He wants Uriah. He told Joab, set him out there, leave him be. So he dies. But notice how it's not just Uriah. I mean, many people, many people apparently, according to the text, paid the price for David's sin. And we need to see that. Because the same thing can occur for you and for me. When we sin greatly against God, it just seems to have that ripple effect at times. Ultimately affecting others, even those who are completely innocent. These other men, they were not caught. They were kind of caught up in the situation. These innocent bystanders who ultimately paid the price for what David had committed and did. Now, I ask you a bit rhetorically, but we know the answer. I mean, is that right? Is that fair? No, it's not right. It's not fair, but it's often the way that it seems to be. Where innocent people caught up in some situation have to also pay the price. Many of you may have heard about five years ago, I guess it is, this November. I think it occurred in 2016. When the pastor at the Newburgh Crossroads Church, the Crossroads Christian Church in Newburgh, much larger than our church, but a pastor had went to Indianapolis with a, I think it was a, a band, with his wife and his two daughters. Uh, Kent Castle High School was up there with some other bands in this performing contest. But when it was all done on a Saturday night, they began to come back to Newburgh. So they're coming down I-69. As they're coming back from I-69, reportedly at 4 a.m. in the morning when they come back, a deer crosses the road, and they hit the deer. So as that happens, I mean, you pull over, right? Because, I mean, your car is probably tore up pretty bad if it's the right, kind of, you know, it's the right moment the deer hit it. I mean, you can continue, but they pull over to assess the situation. Well, as the pastor, he named David Reinhardt, and his wife Ruth and the daughter Sophie and Josie pull over then to assess what's happening with the car, the deer hitting it, 4 a.m. in the morning, along comes on I-69 headed southbound, Mason Hartke, 19-year-old boy from Jasper, who had been drinking. As he's coming down the road, I mean, he, I don't think he sees the car, doesn't see the car, but somehow he swerves, he motions, he, his, his truck goes towards the car, he runs into the car. As they're assessing the situation is happening with the deer hitting the car. Well, unfortunately, then, after he had hit the car of the Reinhardts, Pastor David dies along with his, Ruth wife, uh, his, his wife, Ruth, and the daughter, Sophie. Josie is able to live, but she has serious injuries. But there is an example of how, was the Reinhardt's doing anything wrong? Were they, just caught, they were just caught up in a situation in a moment in time when Harkey had been doing wrong, had his own sin, drinking and driving, coming along, hit the vehicle, and other bystanders paid the penalty. And it reveals our final application. That sin, yes, remember, it always bears consequences. But notice it's often impacting the lives of innocent bystanders. 
No, it's not right. No, it's not fair. But it reminds us of how we have to think it through. David had multiple occasions where he could have stopped his actions. Remember, early on, when he was looking out of the patio, looking over the rooftop, there was a, a servant of his. When David began to inquire about who is that woman, a servant came to him and said, Is this not Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the daughter of Eliam? I mean, the servant was trying to give him a red flag warning and stop. Don't go any further. So David could have stopped his actions way early. And all of his consequences affecting himself and other people would not have happened. We just got to think it through. David should have thought of it. But he didn't. Instead, he acted upon a moment. A fleshly desire. Satan capitalized on the moment. And innocent people end up getting hurt in the sin of one man and one woman. Again, reminds us that our actions, every action we have has consequences. It is always best to think it through before we act. When tempted, and we're going to be tempted, think it through. Don't rush in. Proverbs 14, 16 says, The wise are cautious and avoid danger. Fools plunge ahead with reckless confidence. I mean, fools, we know, rush in quite often. And they often then leads to some regret. Regret, unhappiness, and sorrow. Can you imagine all the unhappiness and sorrow that exists now in the situation? where that one sin initially occurred when David sought out Bathsheba, for all the people now have been affected by that? A lot of regret, a lot of unhappiness, and a lot of sorrow. Our actions always have consequences, and when we sin, it always has consequences. So with that, we're dissecting 17 verses in 2 Samuel chapter 11. The question really becomes, well, what should we do? And a simple answer is to live as righteously, as honest, and as devoted to God as we possibly can. Remember, we talked about when a situation presents itself, the first thing we need to do when we're tempted is to flee. To flee. To run from the devil. To run from temptation. But we also need to live as righteous, as honest, and as devoted to God as possibly we can. But that's a message for next time. As we get further, we kind of leave David and Bathsheba, if you will, and begin to get into a segment at least for a week to find out how we should be living to avoid the temptation and the act of the sin when it comes into our life. That's our message for next time. But for now, try to live as righteous as possible. Think through our actions and choose to do the right thing and bring glory to God. Father, Lord, we thank you for this message. We thank you for multiple weeks. For it taught us, Lord, the right thing that we need to do at a particular time. Lord, we need to think through our actions as we end our message. We see, Lord, how we think. We, we certainly need to think through what we do and, 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 and the consequences that will have from it. So I pray, Lord, for all of us now, as brothers and sisters collectively together here this morning, just to be well, conscious of what we decide and how it will affect others. Let us. Now, Lord, today as we hear this message, choose to live honestly and righteously the best way we can.
We thank you, Lord, for how we have that example in Jesus. If no other thing we know to do, then it's just be followers and imitators of him. We can't go wrong by following Jesus, Lord, and imitating him. So we thank you for the example that he is to all of us. And we certainly thank you for him taking our sin. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.